my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where our mission is to serve you and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. With the new year comes new health insurance deductibles. Yuck! And many of us are feeling it when we fill prescriptions. I have some good news to share with you on that front. Also, a lot of talk about being rich or being poor. There's even a new term that the United States may not be in a recession right now, but it's in a rich session. That people who have a lot of money are feeling blue right now. How about that? But do you actually know where you are on the spectrum? Rich, poor, in between? We're going to talk about how people perceive wealth in the United States. So, prescription drugs are part of the equation with medical. And it's one that is so confusing. And I want to lay something out right now that you may or may not have heard me explain. If you work for an employer who provides a pharmacy benefit to you, a prescription plan, know that that prescription plan is usually not your friend. It's not necessarily your enemy, but at best, it's a frenemy. There are times that that benefit you have for prescriptions is behind your back hurting you, and other times it actually is helping you. And it's because there is a dirty business of kickbacks that goes on in the prescription filling business for people who have a prescription plan from a place of work. It is really dirty pool. It should not exist. And there's a guy we had on the podcast last year who is trying to do something about it, Mark Cuban, who um, is a guy known pretty well, not for all his wealth, but for being on a TV show called Shark Tank. Anyway, Mark... And he owns the Mavericks. He owns the Dallas Mavericks. I got to play basketball with him on the court. I remember one that. time. And that was fun. He's a pretty good shot for a non-professional basketball player. But anyway, that digresses from the point. Mark Cuban has been getting more and more in the prescription drugs business with the business now referred to as Mark Cuban's Cost Plus Drugs. And he's got a new prescription pill manufacturing plant that's almost finished. And they're already filling prescriptions to people under a flat rate formula. And now they are going into the employer-provided pharmacy business, but without the kickbacks. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays. But I want you to know this if you have a prescription plan at work. And this is very important, which is why if you're hearing this for the second or third time, I apologize, but it's really important for people to know. 80% of prescriptions that people fill are generic. And often with generic meds, filling them through the prescription plan at work, you will pay more than if you go shop that in the open market using GoodRx, going to Costco, going to Sam's Club, filling those prescriptions, free market where you just flat out pay cash. I had a situation recently, I 
fill most of my prescriptions at Costco. So I went to pick up a prescription. The pharmacy benefits manager I have through work had really done me a bad deal on this. And I said, wait a minute, what happens if you don't put it through on the pharmacy plan from my employer at all? Because I have multiple employers and I get my benefits from a media company. Anyway, they then rerun it and the cost fell to less than half being a straight cash payer, not using the pharmacy benefit from work versus using the pharmacy benefit. And the good RX thing is great too. Uh, know that you are allowed at Costco or Sam's to fill a prescription even if you're not a member. They don't like for people to know that. But under the law, they cannot restrict you from coming in as a non-member to fill a prescription. Costco has a lower member price on prescriptions than you get as a non-member, though. But knowing this is really important because you may be taking only generics. And understand this about generics. The big pharmacy chains, like CVS and Walgreens, use a very anti-consumer pricing formula when you fill generic drugs based on the theoretical price of the name brand equivalent of that generic. So that's why a drug could be $2 at Costco and $200 from one of the big pharmacy chains. The price differences are shocking. The more you understand about how prescription drugs are priced, the better it'll be for your wallet through 23 and beyond unless things change. With brand names, which again account for a a relatively small percent of prescriptions filled, it is true that with brand names, almost 100% of the time, you will save substantial money using the pharmacy plan at your employer rather than going free market. You should check just like you would normally See what good RX is as a as a baseline, but normally the brand names will be substantially cheaper through the employer plan than on your own. Krista? This first question is from Brent in California. With healthcare on a government mandated multiplication of healthcare costs, is there any way to get the costs down? My insurance went up two hundred and fifty percent over last year. How it went up 250%, I have no idea. I've not heard of premium increases like that at all for people buying their own plans that are what are known as compliant plans on healthcare.gov. In fact, the net for most people has been lower premiums for 23 that are buying their own compliant means they meet all the federal requirements covering this, that, and the other those plans have actually overall gone down for 23 from where they were in 22. Some have gone up some, but 250% not at all. There is something, though, that is going on, and I've already had two complaints about this. Employers where companies have been sold, and the new employer pays a much smaller amount of the actual full cost of providing health coverage to an employee. In those cases, it is possible that the premiums you're paying 
working for a company could have gone up 250%. But I'm not aware of any circumstance where the actual real cost of buying coverage has gone up anything like that kind of number that you're referring to, Brent, at all. Stephanie in Texas says, we're considering setting up a Venmo account for my husband's small business. He has a solo law practice. He just started on his own this week, and we currently don't have any way of accepting electronic payments. I feel that the convenience of contactless payments and not needing to worry about a client's personal check clearing would be worth the 1.9% fee. He will be setting up a retainer agreement with the client and usually requires 50% payment to start the case, usually $1,500 to $3,000. We want to keep things simple, and the no-contract, seemingly easy setup of Venmo is appealing. Is this a good idea, or do you have any other suggestions? Also, his core business is court-appointed cases, so these retained payments are not expected to be more than 20% of his total income. I think the Venmo idea is really good. I mean, we've talked about in the past using Square as a way of processing credit card payments from people, but Venmo is cheaper because you got uh, one9 Versus Square's 2.9? Plus a per transaction fee. Plus per transaction fee. So I think your idea of uh, taking Venmo payments is actually a very good idea. And the Venmo people are jumping up and down with joy because they are hoping that Venmo becomes more and more consumer to company rather than person to person kind of enterprise. John in Ohio says, prior to one of my wife's recent medical checkups, she received phone calls and texts from the provider's billing department asking what form of payment she would like to use to prepay for her estimated portion of the copay deductible. Thankfully, she replied that she absolutely would not like to prepay in any form and that she would make a payment when she received a bill for the actual charges after the appointment. When did prepaying for medical expenses become a thing and why? We've seen enough screw-ups with medical billing that the thought of prepaying an estimate makes me cringe. What are your thoughts, Clark? So, John, the story, the backstory on this is medical providers have a really hard time getting people to pay their portion of a bill after the fact. So it's led to this backlash where more and more medical providers are hooked up to the computer systems of the insurers And they're coming up with an estimate what your portion is going to be of the bill and trying to get you to prepay before you come. And then in theory, they're supposed to refund you if in fact that estimate is wrong and you've overpaid. So that's the story is it's about the frustration of medical providers that they're not getting paid after the medical services are rendered. It is routine, though, and acceptable if there's a visit charge you have on your health plan. Let's say you pay $60 to visit a specialist or $100 or $20 or whatever it is, that you pay that before the appointment. But paying the estimated share of your portion, I'm with you, that you're giving up a lot of power and a lot of rights when you do that. So the reason it's happening is clear because doctors are tired of having to chase after people for payments. But then at the same time, prepaying isn't fair to you either. When I go to a doctor now, often they have me pay it before I go back, my, my copay or whatever, and I don't have a problem with that. 
So the the copay is different because mm-hmm. well, we're talking about that charge, the visit charge. Well, they it's said, different than the balance bill. They're talking here about the balance bill. I thought that it I interpreted that. it it's the, the it, deductible copay slash deductible. So the the copay well, you have to pay to visit, pay that in advance. That's fine. the The amount of the bill that will end up being your responsibility. Paying that in advance when that's just an estimate of what your share would be, I don't like that. I like that after it's processed through insurance and you know your true net amount owed at that point. Are we okay with each other I think so. Yeah, no, I just want to make sure I understood. All right. Maybe we both missed part of that one. So coming up next, I want to know, where do you think you fit on the continuum of financial security in your life or not, wealthy, poor, in between. There was a recent survey that I think is really interesting where we self-assess and how we self-assess where we stand financially. I'm going to share that with you. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Charles Schwab recently surveyed people to get a sense, what did people think you had to have to be rich? There's a lot of different answers to that, but this survey that is done year after year finds that the consensus answer was you have to have a net worth of, hope you're sitting, $2.2 million. Now, the reality is a number like that is unattainable for almost everybody. There's very, very few people that will ever end up with multi-millions in net worth. Very, very rare. And so when you think about where people are on income, you know, they talk about the one percenters. Kiplinger put together a list based on people's income, what kind of money they actually had. So The top 1% of Americans have over $10 million in net worth. $10 million. What about the other 99%? Well, we move down. The top 2% of Americans are in that $2 million range that people said would make you rich. And so you think about that, taking 2% of society and saying people having that or more, that would be rich. That makes sense to me. How about the top 5%? Million dollars. So that means 95% of people have less than a million dollars. Makes sense to me too. And so 
the top half of income earners in the United States have half a million. And that is significant. If you ever heard of Wes Moss, who's a financial planner, he's found that most Americans can have a very comfortable retirement if they are able to hit that half a million that the top 50% of Americans on average have. That you take $500,000 and what people will have from Social Security, whatever other money they might have in savings, or maybe they have a small pension from somewhere or something like that, that $500,000 for the average American retiree gets it done. So why am I talking about this? This is not about creating class envy or anything like that. It's just when the headlines come out that, hey, you're only rich if you have more than $2 million. The reality is being comfortable and being financially secure, that's the standard that really matters. And so over a working lifetime, if you are consistently saving money, you can get to a decent amount of assets and not assets that will get you rich, but assets that will allow you to have peace of mind at the time you retire. And the reality check is half of us approach retirement with not one red cent saved on average, not one. So does that mean you're going to work forever? It does not. It means that your trajectory is likely to be different than the people who have reached retirement age who have that half million or more. What it might mean for you is that work is something you continue to do part-time for years past when you're not working full-time. It may mean you work additional years full-time with a special emphasis in those last several years of squirreling away as much money as you can. And so know that you can ask people, this is really funny, there was a survey a while back that asked people who made ultra high annual incomes, how they were living, and it was amazing how many of them said they were living hand to mouth, that they had no money available for savings or anything like that. And so part of this whole equation is lifestyle creep. How do you live a lifestyle that affords you a decent life and still put money aside to save. You know, there's a level of income where we just don't have enough money regardless to pay everyday expenses to make sure we're putting a decent amount of food on the table and things like that. But you get above a certain level and it's all about choices of what we spend, what we buy with borrowed money. Uh, Think of how much money people spend every month on vehicle loans. And they had a vehicle that was working fine, but they got excited about buying a new vehicle. So it's the lifestyle you adopt that creates the opportunity to save or not save over time. And then the amount of money you have, if you're living a more reasonable lifestyle, the amount of money you have saved goes so much further. Krista? Okay, this question's from Kim in California. What is the best personal savings plan for a teenager, one that they can add to each month? I love, love, love for a teenager to go to Fidelity Investments. 
Fidelity Investments has done a better job than any other financial organization at introducing teenagers to the habit of saving and investing. The amount of money your teenager has to have to open an account at Fidelity Investments, one dollar. That's it, one dollar. And you get in there and you can start putting money into accounts if the teenager's working. A teenager can take money that they're earning from work and put it in my favorite, a Roth IRA. A dollar saved as a teen is so much more powerful than a dollar saved in somebody's 20s or 30s or beyond. Uh, They can do money market accounts, which would be the equivalent of a savings account at Fidelity. And the costs at Fidelity, uh, no commissions. It's a great place for a teenager to get introduced to control because Fidelity allows a teenager to have some degree of control over the account and build a savings and investment habit for a lifetime. I should mention the Fidelity Zero funds. Fidelity has funds not just for teenagers, but for anybody where there's no commissions and Fidelity absorbs all the expenses involved with operating the fund. So every dollar you put in, 100% of it works for you and builds for you. Guy in Colorado says, my homeowner's insurance raised my coverage 17% and used that excuse to raise my premiums by 50%. My wife and I have good savings. I think we should drop homeowner's insurance and get some kind of liability insurance only. If something happens to our house, we can pay for a new roof or dig deep to completely rebuild a smaller new house. So I'm assuming, Guy, from the way you pose this question, you own your home free and clear. Because if you don't, your mortgage company will require that you have homeowner's insurance on the property. And if you do have a mortgage and you drop your homeowner's insurance, they then do what's called force-placed insurance, which is the ugliest bank invention ever. It's insurance that is really crummy in its coverage. And the premiums are usually 20 times or more what you pay for real insurance that you own. So let's say you do own the home free and clear. If your home was a total loss, if that would be an enormous financial setback to you from a fire or something like that, then you cannot afford to go without insuring the dwelling. But you haven't mentioned something at all, Guy, and that is shopping your insurance around with other homeowners insurers. The premium differences can be enormous from one company to another. And so that's the primary step I'd have you do is shop your homeowner's insurance and see what others may have for you as a policy and a premium that may be a much better deal than this insurer that's hitting you with the 50% increase. And in Colorado, we've talked about that. That's probably happening a lot because the fires, fires and- the, the wildfires. This one's from Margarita in New York. She says, as a single mom, I've always tried to save money. For New Year's, I wanted to go out with my son and purchased digital gift cards at Costco with a 20% savings. What shocked me was that when I went to pay, the waitress took my phone to the back where the cashier was. As they walked away with my phone. Took the phone away? Mm Mm-hmm. As they walked away with my phone, I stressed, thinking of everything that was on my phone. Is there any way to freeze the screen on an iPhone, or is there a way to print digital gift cards? Okay. First of all, I'm terrified 
And I'm so glad that more and more restaurants are using the system that's been used everywhere else in the world for, I don't know, 15, 20 years, where they bring the card processing machine to your table. I know this is going to seem weird, maybe would create a little awkwardness, but I would have wanted you to get up and go with the server back to the back. I mean, somebody being in possession of your phone, they could, if you have... um, Venmo. Venmo or Cash App or something like that. They could send money to themselves. I mean, there's all kinds of things that could have gone haywire with somebody having your phone. So uh, I don't like the circumstance at all. And I know we're going to have people who send in, hey, why don't you just take a digital image mm-hmm. of the thing and then they it. have the digital image, but they're still going to have your phone live and active at that point. You can print the Costco cards. I know that because I have one right now and I'm, I just pulled it up and it's print my e-gift card. So but that's- this wasn't, this was a gift card for a restaurant that they bought at oh, discount gotcha. at Costco. Okay. You know how Costco sells you $100 worth of food for 79 yes. at a bunch of restaurants. This was not a Costco card. This that was a digital sense. card from a restaurant that's on the phone. Mm. I, I think, Margarita, as weird as it's going to be, you just want to go back with the person yeah. to the cashier with your phone, uh, which brings up a reminder you're out and about, you're in a shopping center parking lot, and someone says, my phone's dead, and I have a flat tire, can I make a call on your phone? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. That is a scam where somebody gets on your phone, and they send money to themselves. It is bad, ugly, and the position of the banks has been, if that happens, your loss is your loss, and the banks do not cover it as fraud when somebody uses your phone to steal money. So know that you could dial a call for them, put them on speaker, hold the phone and let them talk. And if it's a legitimate call, they will tell whoever, hey, I'm at blah, 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 and my car is dead. Can you come get me? Whatever. But do not let somebody have physical possession of your phone. And I just want you to know, not everybody out there is up to no good. Just got to put that warning out there. And I want to thank you for listening today to our podcast. If you enjoyed it, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever source you use. Let people know about the empowerment that's coming to you from right here, right now.